Hey, doll. Hey, doll. I'm your host, Paula. And I'm your other host, Cynthia. And we are Dolls Dolls and and Doom. Doom. So, Cynthia, remember when we were talking about the Glee curse and you suggested I look into the poltergeist curse? I do, because you don't believe in curses. That's right. Well, I did, and I found a lot more than I expected to. Okay, okay. So today, get ready to be freaked out by the poltergeist curse. (laughs) I'm already scared. Well, first of all, what is a poltergeist? The definition is a noisy, usually mischievous ghost responsible for unexplained noises and objects thrown around. It's a German word that translates to knocking spirit. Steven Spielberg gave us a ton of feel-good movies, but thanks to Poltergeist, he also gave us nightmares. Thanks a lot, Steve. Released in 1982, Poltergeist was considered a masterpiece of American horror cinema. In the movie, we follow the Freeling family as they deal with the paranormal events in their California home. Their daughter, Carol Ann, is abducted right out of her bedroom closet by ghosts that are under control of a demon called the Beast. There is a scene in the movie where the mom, played by Jo Beth Williams, falls into the pool and the skeletons come to life and attack her. The special effects department used real human skeletons for this scene. Oh my goodness. Yeah, not creepy. Everyone on set was creeped out, and many believe that was how the curse started. Okay, let me stop you for a second. Yeah, go ahead. In what universe is it easier to get real skeletons for your film props than it is to get prop skeletons? Well, in this instance, so the bones actually came from India and then were donated to a local medical school, and that's how they got them. Okay, okay. The special effects department bought them for cheap. Fake plastic ones would have been a lot more expensive. Oh, wow. So it really was easier. Yeah, it really was. Okay. It sounds like it would be the opposite, but no. Yeah. Okay. So paranormal investigator Paul Roberts said, when you use real human bones, that angers the spirits. You bring a curse upon yourself. Heather O'Rourke was seen playing with them, and when the actors and crew heard the skeletons were real, there was a feeling of unease on set. Those that were religious or spiritual felt that this was a bad omen. And that's when the rumors began. I would just feel like it was like just disrespectful. Yeah, that too. They donated their bodies to science. Okay, that's one thing. But they're being used for like a movie. That just seems very irreverent to me. Right. Even in a graveyard, I won't step on the grave. I will go around them. Right. Just a little bit of respect. Absolutely. Joe Beth would go home after shooting and find framed photos on her wall crooked. She would straighten them, go back to work the next day, and come home to find them again crooked. Dominique Dunn, who played teenage daughter Dana, said she would go home to find books from her bookcase on the floor. She would put them back and would return from work the next day to find them again on the floor. She didn't put them there, and there was no one else in the house. Paul Roberts said that when things get moved around in the home, that spirits are angry and letting us know they aren't going away. Remember the clown? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so what was supposed to happen in the film is it reaches out from under the bed and pulls Robbie, the little boy, played by Oliver Robbins, under his bed. During shooting of this scene, the clown has a robotic arm that is controlled by a special effects person with a remote control. The plan was to make it look like the clown was attacking him, 
by wrapping the clown arm around Oliver's neck and then running the film backwards. Some on set thought this kid is a great actor, but then Spielberg noticed his labored breathing. Oliver said, quote, they didn't really have the special effects that they do today. The clown doll had this extended arm and they had me act backwards. The contraption got caught around my neck. Steven saw, probably in the video, and he pulled me away from it. Who knows what would have happened otherwise. Wow, that's scary. Yeah. So what was supposed to be a simple scene could have been a near-death experience. Four cast members died during and soon after filming the Poltergeist series. Shortly after the first movie's release, Dominique Dunn, again she was the daughter Dana, met a tragic end. On October 30, 1982, she was in her house, rehearsing with her co-star David Packer for the upcoming TV miniseries, V. Do you remember that? No, I don't remember that. Okay, so it was a TV miniseries, and there were these aliens that looked just like us, but you could peel off the skin and see the scales underneath. Oh my gosh. It was so disturbing. I'm going to have to Google this now. I was born in 82, though. Oh, see, that's that's why. why. That's why. So anyway, when she was on the phone with a friend, her ex-boyfriend, John Sweeney, made the operator break into the call. She told her friend it was John and to let her get him off the phone. But a few minutes later, he shows up at her house. She goes to the porch to speak to him and they begin to argue. Packer, still inside, said he heard screaming, smacking around, and then a thud. After seeing her laying in the yard, he called police. When they arrived, Sweeney met them hands in the air. When questioned, he claimed he couldn't remember what happened, only that he was on top of her with his hands around her neck. She was taken to Cedar sinai and put on life support, but after the brain scan showed no activity, her parents consented to taking her off life support and donating her organs to transplant recipients. Sweeney was charged with first-degree murder and assault with intent to do great bodily harm. He was sentenced with six years in prison, plus six months for assault charge, but he only served three years and seven months. And here's what makes this super weird. Dominique's final TV appearance was an episode of Hill Street Blues as an abused teen. She didn't need makeup for bruises, thanks to Sweeney, so the bruises that you see are real. The episode aired 12 days after her funeral, and it was dedicated to her memory. She was only 23. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's terrible. Author James Kahn would basically take the script and turn it into a book. He said he experienced strange activity while writing the first film's novel in Spielberg's office. He was there working late one night. He would write a page and hand it to a secretary who would then type it up and print out the pages. It was not raining, but it was a dark and cloudy night. As he was writing the words, thunder and lightning ripped the sky. There was a huge thunderclap and lightning outside. All the lights went out in the building and the face of the AC vent flew off and zoomed across the room. There was a long period of silence, and then all of a sudden, the video games turned on and began to play by themselves. Oh my gosh. (laughs) On the first day of shooting the second Poltergeist film, after a full day of shooting, they go back and look at the dailies, which is basically the film to see how it looked. Nothing was on the film. It was completely blank. Not a single thing was captured, and they had a veteran cinematographer, so he knew what he was doing. And side note, they used real skeletons again. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And that was just the beginning. So, Cynthia, I know technically we're still in the middle of summer, 
but true Halloween fans know it's time to start thinking about our favorite time of year. That's right, you're reading my mind. It is never too early to plan your Halloween costume. And this year, I'm going to be using McCabe's costumes. Yes, they're the best. They're a family-owned company, which is amazing because I love to support other small businesses. Me too. And they have high-quality costumes that ship right to your door. You know what else is great about McCabe's costumes? Not only do they have an amazing costume selection, they also carry super fun leggings, which is perfect because a lot of us are still working from home and we just want to feel comfortable, right? That's right. I love wearing cute leggings around the house or in the recording studio because not only am I super comfy, but I also really look cute. And McCabe's carries leggings with all kinds of super fun prints. I especially like the Hocus Pocus print, which has these adorable vintage style witches and pumpkins and ghosts all over them. That print totally has this Dolls and Doom retro vibe that you and I love. Yes, and the best part is you can do all of your shopping online and have your costume or comfy festive clothing and accessories delivered right to your door. Girl, you gotta love that. After this last year, I want everything delivered right to my front door. I know, me too. And right now, McCabe's is running a special offer for Dolls and Doom listeners. Just use the code DOLLS10 for 10% off your purchase. McCabe's Costumes also offers free shipping on orders over $35. Polly, you know what I love most about McCabe's Costumes? They actually give back to the community. They donate costumes to kids in need who would otherwise not have access to one. And if you, our listener, would like to participate in this awesome cause, you can make a donation directly on the website. Just hit the donate button right on the homepage and you can donate $30, which McCabe's costumes will then match. They match every single donation received. So with your $30 donation, two kids who would not have access to a costume will get one. And this year McCabe's also supported autism causes and their local Shriners Club. I love this so much. Not only are you buying something amazing for yourself, but you are giving back. What other costume shop does that? Exactly. So shop for your costumes or festive wear at McCabe's Costumes and feel good about making the world a happier place at the same time. Go right now and get your Halloween costume, festival wear, or comfy leggings at McCabe'sCostumes.com. That's M-C-C-A-B-E-S Costumes.com. There were many unexplained occurrences, strange noises, shadowy figures, and malfunctioning equipment. It was said that lights in the neighborhood would blow out when you tried to light them. They used drone photography, and for some unknown reason, they couldn't lock into the GPS signal in the neighborhood. So instead, they had to launch the drones from at least 10 feet away. It was said that these unexplained and constant equipment malfunctions were only in that one piece of land used for the neighborhood. Will Sampson was now part of the franchise and felt that there was something wrong. He told the cast and crew that because they had used real skeletons, they had invited the curse and that was why the footage was black. Will was a real Indian shaman and the cast had jokingly said that he should cleanse the set. But Will, quite serious, told security to leave the door unlocked and that he would come in later that night and perform a cleansing ceremony and that's exactly what he did. The next day, everyone felt a huge sense of relief, but it was short-lived. Will's health was good early on in shooting the sequel, but
but later he was taking oxygen. He was suffering from emphysema. He died of complications during a major but routine surgery. He was only 52. Wow. And he died one year after cleansing of the poltergeist set. Craig T. Nelson, who plays the father, went to visit Will's grave. The cicadas were out, and you know them when you hear them. Well, they were out, and it was loud. He couldn't hear any other noise. He said out loud, quote, Hey, Will, it's Craig, and claims that after that, the cicadas stopped, and it was dead quiet. Oh, gosh. Being a skeptic when it came to the poltergeist curse, Craig looked around thinking someone was pranking him. He said later, quote, I am convinced Will's presence on the film saved us from tragedy. Not only does he play a native shaman in the film, he's a native shaman himself, and I believe it cost him in terms of his own personal health to see us safely through. That was not the only death. The evil preacher Kane, played by Julian Beck, died of stomach cancer shortly after the second movie finished. Director Gary Sherman had reservations about even doing a third movie. In this film, we follow Carol Ann as she goes to live with her aunt and uncle in a high-rise in Chicago. Oak Brook Terrace would prove to be a scary and dangerous place. They were filming a scene in a parking lot, and blasts that were set to go off shooting down a track toward the camera suddenly ignited six prop cars covered in polyfoam, and they all burst into flame. Thick black smoke was coming out of all of the air vents. The cars and whole parking lot were destroyed, costing more than a quarter of a million dollars in damages. What was supposed to be a simple scene turned out to be a costly and terrifying experience. There is another scene where Carol Ann is standing at a puddle of water and a set of arms reach up and grab her, pulling her down. They built a glass tank with 5,000 gallons of water in it. The glass was eight inches thick. During shooting, the special effects operator yells for everybody to get out of the studio now. The glass was cracking from the inside, and if the glass were to break, it would kill everyone. So they all abandoned set and didn't use the tank. Zelda Rubenstein, who plays Tangina, was having stills taken on set when all of a sudden she felt a jolt pass through her body. They asked if she was okay. She said yes and continued with the photo shoot. During the shoot, the producer gets a call that Zelda's mother had died, so they put her on a plane. The next day, they get the proofs back, and right in the middle of the shoot was a white blur over Zelda. It's the only picture of her like this. They even sent that negative back to Kodak and asked what happened, but they couldn't explain it. They later found out that the timestamp on that picture was the time that her mother passed away. Okay, I literally just got chills. Oh. Yeah, stuff like that you just can't explain. Like someone dying of stomach cancer, right. that's pretty obvious what happened. But this? That's kind of beautiful too, though. It's almost like... Yeah, like her mother was... Her saying goodbye. Yes, Exactly. An engineer that ran the Hancock building was visiting the poltergeist set one evening. He sat down in a chair and fell asleep. When they were done filming that scene and ready to move on, someone went over to wake up the engineer, but he wasn't sleeping. He was dead. I would, okay, so we all know I'd love to be a movie star. I would not be in this movie. (laughs) I would not be in this franchise. I would not even be in the remake. Right. Standing this one out. Yeah. So Richard Lawson, who played the paranormal investigator in the first film, was boarding a plane at LaGuardia. One of the flight attendants recognized him and moved him from coach to first class. Once he sat down, he had the horrible feeling he shouldn't be on the plane, that something was going to go horribly wrong. From the minute the plane took off, there were malfunctions and it crashed at takeoff. 
Lawson survived. However, 27 of the 51 people on board were dead, including the person who was seated in Lawson's original seat. Wow. Gil Keenan, who directed the Poltergeist remake in 2015, said, quote, The house that I rented during the film was straight up legit haunted by a female spirit dressed in black. I became aware of her within the first few days of staying in the house. Only after I left did I receive a call from the previous owner who moved back in. She was terrified by the goings-on in the house and wanted to see if I'd experienced any of it. So it was an incredible real-life inspiration for filming that followed me home. Heather O'Rourke was six years old when the first movie was released. Spielberg said for the role of Carol Ann, he was looking for a beautiful four-year-old, every mother's dream, and he found her in Heather. She was discovered when she and her mother were having lunch while her big sister Tammy was shooting Pennies in Heaven. Spielberg saw Heather and approached them. He asked Heather if she could read. She said yes, so he handed her a part of the script and had her read it, and then scream a few times. He gave her the role the next day, beating out Drew Barrymore, who was also up for the role. Heather was the Poltergeist franchise. Fellow co-stars said she was everything you would want in a child actor. She was sweet and unaffected by fame. She was misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease in 1987 after swimming in a lake at her family's house at Big Bear Lake. She was taking steroid injections for treatment while filming the third movie. The injections resulted in facial swelling. That's why her cheeks are so puffy in the last film. The cast members could tell something was wrong. A year later, she was at home and excited for school. Her mom made her a piece of toast and Heather touched her mother's hand. Her little fingers were ice cold and blue. She couldn't swallow and suffered cardiac arrest and collapsed. She was rushed to the hospital and went into surgery. While in recovery, she suffered another cardiac arrest, but this time she did not survive. The official cause of death was congenital stenosis of the intestine, complicated by septic shock. Her intestines were growing faster than her little body would allow it, and it began to leak, which caused septic shock. An x-ray was taken a year prior, but it was misread. They were filming the end of the movie when they found out Heather died. They still had 17 pages to shoot, so they used a double for Heather. Her mother said that back in December, Heather was trying to show her how to use her new video camera, and she asked why. Heather replied, quote, in case I'm not here someday. Whether you believe in curses or not, there was definitely something spooky on the Poltergeist movie sets. Uh, I would definitely say so. Yeah. And I do believe in curses. <laughs> okay, so Paula, I thought we could switch things up a little bit today and I would take over your time to kill segment. Perfect. And since you had mentioned to me that you were going to be covering the Poltergeist curse... I thought I would do a little segment that kind of tied into that. So I'm going to tell you about Paul Bateson. Paul Bateson was born on August 24th, 1940. He was a Virgo. He was also a radiographer who had performed a cerebral angiography, which is when a catheter is inserted into an artery in the neck in order to take images of the brain. A movie director named William Friedkin was visiting the hospital to do some research for an upcoming film when he observed Paul performing this procedure. Now he found this procedure so disturbing that he decided to write the scene into his upcoming horror film and he decided to cast Paul as an extra. The name of this movie is called The Exorcist. 
Have you heard of it? Um, I think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so seriously, The Exorcist is probably the scariest movie I've ever seen in my life. Yes. It is terrifying. Yes, it is. So in 1973, Paul played a radiological technologist in the film. And if you've seen the movie, you can see Paul in that scene where Regan is having this terrifying medical procedure done. Now, he's not the actor who's actually doing the procedure. He's the guy who seems more like the assistant. So he's a little more in the background of the scene. And interestingly, this scene is actually considered to be one of the scariest scenes in the history of horror movies even though it isn't related to the devil or the occult. It's just terrifying and really hard to watch. Do you remember it? No, but as soon as we're done, I want to pull it up on YouTube. Okay, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can see a catheter being inserted into Reagan's neck through an artery, and she, like, grimaces and blood splurts everywhere. And then they strap her down, and then these machines come, like, around her head and do this loud scan, kind of like an MRI. Okay. So it's just claustrophobic and painful and... Just an overall terrible situation, which is what makes it so scary because it's real. Right. What makes this scene even scarier is the fact that six years after this scene was shot, Paul Bateson committed his first murder and then became a serial killer in real life. His crimes are so terrible that he was even featured on the show Mindhunter. Oh, okay. Yes. Paul was convicted of killing a film industry journalist named Addison Verrill in 1979. And before that, it's believed that he may have murdered several gay men in New York throughout the 1970s. Addison Verrill, who was his last victim, was found beaten and stabbed to death in Verrill's apartment. After his murder, his friend, a fellow writer and gay activist named Arthur Bell wrote a piece in the Village Voice asking the killer to please come forward. Unbelievably, eight days later, a man contacted Bell via telephone and said that he had murdered Addison. Now, this person said that they'd gone out and partied together and that they had then gone back to Verrill's apartment. The caller said that he'd made advances towards Verrill and was rejected and, quote, I needed money and I hated the rejection. I decided to do something I'd never done before, end quote. He said he hit Verrill with a frying pan and then stabbed him after he was unconscious. He then stole some cash, a credit card, Verrill's passport, and some clothes. The caller then told Bell that he wanted to atone for other crimes. But after this phone call, Bell received a call from another man who said his name was Mitch, and this man accused Paul Bateson of murdering Verrill. Bateson was ultimately sentenced to 20 years in jail for Verrill's murder, although he was never convicted of any of the other murders, despite having allegedly confessed to his friend, Richard Ryan. Now, the bodies of these other victims were all dismembered and stuffed into trash bags and then spent between two and six weeks in the Hudson River before some of the fragments washed up on the New Jersey shore and other fragments washed up near the World Trade Center. Now, at first, none of these six victims were identified, and their cause of death was not officially determined. However, some of the clothing was traced to a fetish shop that catered to the leather community, and authorities were able to identify some distinctive tattoos on one of the victims that identified him as homosexual. Paul Bateson frequented the gay bars in the meatpacking district, but the police could never officially connect him to these bodies. 
Though there was not direct proof to connect Bateson to these murders, in all six cases, examiners said that whoever cut up those bodies was a person who was either a butcher or a person with medical knowledge because of the way the cuts were done. Although Batesman always publicly denied his involvement in the bag murders, it is alleged that while in custody, Batesman bragged of killing other men, quote, for fun, end quote, dismembering their bodies and dropping the bagged remains in the Hudson River. The bag murders, which later inspired the movie Cruising, have never been officially solved. Batesman was released in 2003, just one day after turning 67 years old after being granted parole, and nothing more is known of his whereabouts after this time, although a social security record shows a Patrick F. Bateson with the same birth date passing away in 2012. Now, guess what? What? This isn't the only really scary true life event associated with this movie. Really? You see, The Exorcist is also potentially a cursed film. Okay. All right, so... You want to hear about it? Yes, please. Okay. So The Exorcist is actually based off of a real-life event. In 1971, William Peter Blady wrote a novel of the same name based on the real-life exorcism of a boy known as Roland Doe. And that's actually a pseudonym. We don't know his real name. Okay. Catholic priest at Georgetown University Hospital performed the real-life exorcism but had to stop when the boy managed to get free from his restraints, pull a bed spring out of his mattress, and slash one of the priest's arms. When Blady wrote the novel, Roland's family requested the character be changed to a girl to protect their son's identity. Roland went on to live a normal life with no memory of the incident, and decades later, he retired from a career at NASA. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Yes. I had no idea. Me neither. I'm also glad they changed the character to a girl because there's something really terrifying about a demonic little girl. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so let me tell you just a few, and this is literally just a few, of the weird things that surrounded this movie. Okay. Okay, so firstly, shooting was actually delayed after the set caught fire. Now, this set that was supposed to be the McNeil's home was destroyed. Director William Friedkin blamed the incident on, quote, a winged creature with talons, end quote, after a pigeon attempted to make a nest in one of the circuit boxes, causing the fire. Only one piece of the set was completely undamaged, and that was Reagan's room. Interesting. During filming, the actress who played Reagan's mother, Ellen Burstyn, was injured when the possessed Reagan throws her to the ground. The take where she's injured is the take that was actually used in the final cut of the film. And the blood-curdling scream that you hear is like a real genuine scream of pain. Oh my gosh. No. And this was a long-term injury and she is still bothered by it today. During filming, more than one person associated with the film died. Actors Jack McGowan and Vasiliki Malarios both died while the film was still in post-production, and eerily, both of their characters died in the film as well. During filming, Linda Blair's grandfather and Max von Sydow's brother died, and Max's brother actually died on Max's very first day of shooting. During filming, the son of Jason Miller, who played Father Damien, was almost killed when a motorcycle hit him. 
Linda Blair was thrown out of bed when a piece of rigging broke during one of the possession scenes, causing her to injure her back, and after the film was released, Linda received so many death threats from religious extremists who believed that this film glorified Satan that the studio had to hire bodyguards to escort her for the next six months. And she was literally just a child. Wow. In 1987, actress Mercedes McCambridge, who played the demonic voice, was devastated when her son murdered his wife and children before killing himself. Oh my gosh. You know. This film had so many strange and terrible circumstances surrounding it that some people believed that the actual film itself was cursed and that playing it through a projector was an invitation for demonic possession. When it was first released, the film was banned in every Middle Eastern country but Lebanon, and the re-release was also banned in Lebanon. During the Roman premiere, audiences had to fight their way through a torrential downpour with thunder and lightning to get inside the theater. And once inside, many claimed to hear a horrific, almost demonic cry coming from outside once the film started rolling. Whoa. At one showing of the film, a woman became so frightened that she passed out and broke her jaw when she fell. She actually sued the filmmakers, suggesting that subliminal messages caused the accident, and Warner Brothers settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. This film affected audiences so strongly that paramedics were called to treat people who fainted and others who went into hysterics at many of the showings. That's a lot of weird stuff, right? Yeah, it is. And extreme, too. (laughs) Right. Okay, so Paula, one of my very, very, very favorite things is movie trivia. Okay. Any movie I see before I see it or if I'm watching it at home, like literally while I watch it, I go to IMDb and I read the trivia page. Okay. I just think it's super fun to like learn all the behind the scenes stuff. So I'm going to leave you with just a little bit of exorcist trivia. So first of all, the scene where Regan projectile vomits was done in one take. The vomit, which was actually Anderson's brand pea soup, was supposed to hit Jason Miller in the chest but the plastic tubing misfired, causing the vomit to hit him in the face. His reaction of shock and disgust is genuine, and Miller later admitted that this mistake made him very angry. Originally, Campbell's pea soup was to be used in this scene, but filmmakers didn't like the way it looked, so they switched to the Anderson's brand. Now, Jason Miller also said in an interview that he got into a huge argument with director William Friedkin, after William fired a gun near his ear to get an authentic reaction from him. He told William that he is an actor and he didn't need a gun to act surprised or startled. This is Warner Brothers' highest grossing film of all time when adjusted for inflation. And it is also the highest grossing R-rated film of all time when adjusted for inflation. Many people may not know this, but when you hear Reagan speaking as the demon, that's not actually Linda Blair. And this actually caused a lot of drama when Reagan was nominated for some Best Actress Awards because at the time, many people thought that that was actually her voice, but you know, it wasn't. Now, once an actor has been nominated for one of these awards, the nomination cannot be revoked, but the scandal of it not actually being Linda Blair's voice ultimately cost her the award. 
So the demon voice was actually performed by actress Mercedes McCambridge. She's the one whose son killed his wife and kids. Right. Okay, so she drank raw eggs and she chain-smoked to help her alter her voice for this role. She was a recovering alcoholic, but she wanted to drink whiskey, knowing that it would distort her voice even further, as well as help her to create a crazed mind. She was also bound to a chair with pieces of a torn sheet at her neck, arms, wrists, legs, and feet in order to get a more realistic sound of the demon struggling against its restraints. Now, she later recalled this experience as one of horrific rage, and director Friedkin admitted that her performance still terrifies him to this day, so much so that he did not recast her in the film's TV version, and instead he played the demon's voice himself. The original trailer was nothing but images of the white-faced demon quickly flashing in and out of darkness, and it was banned in many theaters as it was deemed too frightening. But interestingly, these white-faced demon shots are actually just rejected makeup tests for Reagan's possessed appearance. Okay, this one cracks me up. (laughs) This one literally makes me laugh. So Jack Nicholson was up for the part of Father Karras, but William Friedkin thought he was too unholy to ever play a priest. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) That's literally my favorite piece of trivia. I love love it. And I love Jack Nicholson. I adore him. Okay, the famous spider walk scene was filmed on April 11th, 1973 using a contortionist, but it was deleted before the film's release because William Friedkin felt it was too much too soon in the film and also because there's no way to hide the wires that held the contortionist from view at that time. Now, Friedkin changed his mind and added the scene back for the extended 2000 version with the wires digitally removed. And Paula, I have to tell you, the first time I saw this movie, I was a teenager and I watched the original cut and there was no spider walk. The second time I watched this, I was a single mom living alone in a hundred year old house. Oh, not smart. Sorry, but not (laughs) smart. At night, right. (laughs) I was not expecting this spider walk scene. So, ooh. Surprise. Yeah. Yeah, I think I was in sixth grade, and I was having a slumber party, and there was, like, a crumpled ball of jeans, like, on the floor, and I swear when the lights were turned off, it looked just like Reagan's head, so <laughs> I was like, I couldn't sleep. My eyes were, like, wide open in the dark, staring at my jeans, convinced it was the head of Reagan oh, staring back at me. It probably was. It might have been. You never know. Classic. <laughs> the Exorcist is the first horror movie to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture. The only other movies in this category to ever be nominated are Get Out, Jaws, The Silence of the Lambs, which is my favorite movie of all time, and The Sixth Sense. However, none of these films are designated as horror films on IMDb. Interesting. The author who wrote the book The Exorcist, on which the movie was based, said that director William Friedkin misinterpreted the head-spinning scene. In the book, it was actually written that Regan's head turned almost all the way around. It was never intended that her head would literally rotate 360 degrees as it does in the film. Regan's bedroom set was refrigerated with four air conditioners and temps would drop below 30 degrees. And this was so that they could capture the effect of the actor's breath 
right and like you know just the feeling of cold yeah they said it would literally almost like snow on on set Holy just from cow. like the condensation and stuff in the air and to this day linda blair says she can't stand being cold yeah i can see why the film's sound was notable for its bizarre use of unusual sound effects and in some instances its complete lack of sound the sound designers used a variety of recording effects ranging from beagle dogs making noise pigs going to the slaughter a woman convulsing and a trapped bee and a lot of these are just like barely audible so it really is almost subliminal Mm-hmm. Like the B sound specifically, it's like just enough to make you feel really uncomfortable, but right. you don't really hear it. Yeah. I love, it's brilliant. It is. It's so brilliant. The very last piece of trivia for you. It has been reported that The Exorcist was serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer's very favorite film. Oh my gosh. Right? That's not surprising. It's not. Because it's a great movie and I love it, but like for it to be your favorite film... You've got to be disturbed. <laughs> something wrong. Yeah, there's something <laughs> wrong with you. The Exorcist. But see, again, okay, so now do you believe in curses? The more occurrences where there are unexplained situations or occurrences, yeah, I, I guess I would call it a curse. Right. To me, these people are just like delving into some touchy subjects. Hey, so guys, it's no coincidence that today's episode is based around movies paula and i have made our very first trailer and it premieres today yes it does go over to youtube dolls and doom podcast or you can go to our social media we're going to share it on all of our social media pages but you can watch paula and i doing something a little fun on that note If you would go and wherever you listen to your podcast, if you'd leave us a reading, we really appreciate it. We do look over those. Hit like and subscribe and tell a friend. And if you have a weird case you'd like us to cover, let us know. Drop us an email. Yes, our email is dollsanddoom at gmail.com. All right. Well, we hope to bring you a new episode every Friday. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.